Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Good evening. Um, We gather again to study the book of Revelation. Tonight we're going to look at the uh, second and third chapters together. It's the seven churches. John is writing to seven churches. He begins the book um, showing them a vision of Jesus, and then he's going to go and directly address each one of them before he goes into all of his really crazy visions that we'll get to in the coming weeks. Um, and so open your Bibles to Revelation 2 and 3. If I were preaching Revelation kind of more drawn out as I do on Sunday morning with, with John and as I've done with Philippians and various other books, I would preach it um, to where I, I preached each one of these letters individually. Um, but I'm just kind of doing a flyover of the book of Revelation, and so I am going to preach all seven of them together as a unit um, because I think the book is divided in such a way where the, where the seven letters are meant to be a unit together. Um, and, and so we're going we're gonna to look at all seven letters as we go through it. Um, what I want you to notice as we read these letters in a minute is that these letters are personal Jesus is specifically speaking to seven real churches with real people in them and real issues, just like ours. Real people, real church, real things going on. And I want you to notice as we read them just how well Jesus knows his churches. He speaks to them very directly and he speaks to each church personally in in a certain way. He's deeply committed to each of these seven churches and to all of his churches. He wants their well-being, and he loves them. He doesn't pamper them um, as he's going through them. He doesn't doesn't push aside the things they have messed up. He he directly addresses their problems. Um, He is um, going to comfort them. He's going to confront them. He's going to challenge them. He's going to cleanse them. He's going to do all these different things. Um, Remember, as we look at Revelation, the number seven means it represents completion in the book of Revelation. It represents kind of the full expanse of all things. Um, And so Jesus is speaking to seven real churches, but this is also his heart for all of his churches, including ours. I'm going to read these seven letters all together. It's going to be a long little thing as I read them together, but I want you to hear them all read together as these seven churches would have heard it as the letter was read in their midst. They would have heard all seven of these letters read all together. And as I read through them, I want you to pay attention to them, and I want you to see that they're actually structured exactly the same. All of the letters read exactly the same. They just have different details put in. Um, So I'm going to read them. Then I'm going to make some remarks about their structure And then I want us to think about them as a whole and see what Jesus wants for his church specifically that's seen in these seven letters. So Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read chapters 2 and 3. It's going to be a little long, just bear with me and read along with me as I go. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came back to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works and your faith, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the works of Jezebel, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into, the, into great tribulation unless they repent." of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts, who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. 
The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out the name, his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has his, the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before you, before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast that you, what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar of, uh, in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen and the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If I were preaching this a little bit different of a way, I probably would have read those one at a time. But I wanted you to hear them all read together so that you kind of hear they're all pretty much the same letter. They're just individually addressing each church. How do you view the church? 
What do you think of the church? Do you see the church as maybe a retirement community? It's a place where, um, where you really plug in once you're retired. You have friends there, you eat some meals there, you vote on some stuff, you do business, you help some other people out, and ultimately you have someone um, to handle your funeral one day. You know, young people are there, but they only really get involved after they retire. Is that how you view the church? Do you view the church as maybe a clinic for the soul? That is, everybody's going through something, and they come to church to be able to be uplifted and helped in what they are going through. Do you see the church as a sanctuary from the world? That is, we retreat in here. We have high walls to protect us from the evils of the world out there. We bring our kids in here so that they can be safe and not get defiled by the systems of the world. These passages, Revelation 2 and 3, present the church not as any of those things, but as an embassy of Christ on earth. The, the church in, this, in these first three chapters is referred to as seven lampstands. They're lampstands because they represent the light of the world, shining out to the dark world. The light shines in the darkness through the church. The light of the world, Christ, shines to the world through the church. That's how he set it up. The church is an embassy of Christ on earth. What is an embassy? Well, if we have a U.S. United States embassy in another country, what, what, what is it? Well, it's a headquarters of the U.S. government on foreign soil. So let's just pretend Japan. I don't know if Japan has a U.S. embassy or not. Maybe they do. Um, but, but let's just pretend. So if there's a U.S. embassy in Japan, understand some things about that embassy. A Japanese person cannot enter that American embassy without permission, even if there's an emergency. So they see the building on fire. They grab a water hose. They want to run in there and put it out. They can't get in there without American permission even then. If the Japanese army was to attack the American embassy, it would be considered an attack on the United States itself, even though it's in Japan. Often the embassies will be decorated like an American place in American setting, so they'll have American architecture. You can get American food there. It's, it's like a little piece of American culture planted in another nation. That's what the church is. The church is an embassy of heaven on earth. That's what it's supposed to be. It's meant to be a military that bears witness to the gospel in a foreign land. Certainly we hope we have those other things I mentioned earlier. Certainly we hope we have friends here and we eat meals together here and we get help for our soul and we're protected from the world. But those aren't the main purpose of the church. Though we often make those the main purpose. The church is an embassy of heaven on earth. That's why when problems, when churches have problems, like some of these letters, it's, it's, it's not just a tiny thing. It's a big deal. Problems in a church aren't like, you know that family member you have that he's just really loud and he chews with his mouth open and he's just crazy, frankly? Um, you, 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 you know he's crazy and you tell everybody he's crazy, but you still put up with him because he's family and you love him. That's not how problems in the church are. It's, it's not that they are some kind of, you know, issue that we just kind of sweep under the rug and, and, and you know, not worry about. 
Problems in a church misrepresent heaven to the people of earth, and they must be dealt with. Notice each of these seven letters. Only two of them do the churches not have some kind of problem that Jesus addresses. Smyrna and Philadelphia, the second and the sixth letter. The other five all have things that Jesus confronts them about, some kind of problem in their church. And he warns them in various ways. Take, take a look at how he warns them. Chapter 2, verse 5. If you will not repent and change, I will come and remove your lampstand. I will come and literally put your fire out. I'll pour water on your fire and put you out. I will shut your church down, is what he says. If you don't fix this problem, your church's doors are going to close. Next, chapter 2, verse 16, to Pergamum. I will come and make war with you with the sword. He's going to use the sword of his mouth, the, what he's talking about, he's going to use the sword of his mouth to slay those who don't follow him in Revelation 19. He's going to use it to literally slay all of those in judgment. He says, I'm going to use that same sword and come against your church if you don't get this worked out, if you don't repent. Chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. Uh, those who are being wicked, I will throw them onto a sick bed. I will literally make them develop a sickness and get sick and die. It's a big deal. Chapter 3, verse 3. I will come against you like a thief in the night. I don't want a thief breaking into my house in the middle of the night. And that's what Jesus says he's going to do to this church. I am going to break in and rob the place, is what he tells them. I am going to come and take all of your possessions with me and take them somewhere else. And then finally, probably the most famous one, chapter 3, verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus tells the church at Laodicea, you kind of make me want to throw up. That's how bad your devotion is. It makes me want to hurl. Jesus holds no punches with the sins in his church. He wants it removed. It's why when a church has a serious problem that comes to light in the public, whether it's, you know, they, they've completely changed their position on some serious doctrine or um, there's rampant immorality in the church or the pastor had an affair or whatever, that's why often that church begins its descent to closing its doors. That's why there's some denominations right now that have essentially denied a major part of Christian truth and people are leaving that denomination like crazy because they're not going to stand for it. And that there's, I think it's the Episcopals of Canada, I'm probably wrong, on that some denomination in Canada uh, they're predicting that by 2050 it will not exist because the, the the people in the churches will continue to either die or leave and pretty soon they're not going to have a denomination left all because they deny essential Christian doctrine they stopped holding to it Jesus is waging war against them with the sword so let me give you the basic structure of these seven letters. I, I hope you saw it as we read it, but let me give you kind of the basic structure, and then I want to bring them together and give us just some application for our church from these letters. So all of these letters are, they, they follow the exact same structure. Um, first of all, it says, to the angel at whatever church, write this. Who are these angels? Well, um, theologians and scholars have, have a lot of ideas. Basically, they come down to, to kind of two ideas. Um, they are either um, the church's pastor, um, 
he, he's going to be the one to read this, um, th- this letter out loud to the church. So it could be the church's pastor. The Greek word for angel is angelos. Angelos can certainly mean heavenly beings that fly around with, with wings and everything. It, it can also simply mean just a messenger, just a person who carries a message. In Mark chapter 1, speaking of John the Baptist, the Greek says that, but behold, I have sent my angelos, referring to John the Baptist. He's not a heavenly being, he's just a man. Um, But that's what the Greek word means there. So could this mean the pastor of the church? Maybe, but maybe you think, you know, I know a lot of pastors and not many of them are angels. Um, So what's the second option? Well, the second option is that this is an angelic representative of those churches. Um, And each church has an angelic representative. The seven churches here and every church out there has a representative in heaven who is the angel of that church. Um, It's not a guardian angel. That that idea isn't really a biblical idea that everybody has a guardian angel. That's that's more of a hallmark idea than a biblical idea. Um, It's something more sort of like your state representative in the the House of Representatives. Um, They represent the state of Georgia. There's two of them. I believe, I'm getting my Senate and my House backwards, but, but there are um, representatives of each state in the House of Representatives. And that, that's kind of what they think it's like, like an angel represents that church in heaven. Um, and they would say this because every other time the word angelos, the Greek word for angel, is used in Revelation, it always refers to heavenly beings. It doesn't refer to pastors. Um... You know, I don't really know where I stand on that. I don't know which one of those I line up with. I'm not really satisfied with either of them. Um, I'm not really satisfied with the first one because I do recognize that, that every time angelos is used in Revelation, it refers to a heavenly being, not a pastor. Um, but I'm not really satisfied with the second one because it doesn't make sense for John to write to the angel in heaven when the pastor is going to take it and read it to the congregation. So I probably honestly lean more toward the first one, toward it being the pastor of the church, um, that is the, the, more than the angelic represent, representative of the church. Uh, the Bible doesn't really indicate, to my knowledge, that, that every church has an angelic representative in heaven. Um, but this is one of those areas where we have to read this book and just say, I don't really know. We have to be willing to do that with this book because there's a lot of times where we're just going to have to come away and say, I don't know who this is. I would lean more toward pastor, but I'm not going to make, it wouldn't take very much persecution for me to change my mind to the other side. Um, So, to the angel of this church, right, and then he introduces himself. Jesus introduces himself with a detail. It's always a detail from one of those first two visions of Jesus in Revelation 1. So you remember you had the vision of Jesus in chapter chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, and then verse 12 through 20, two visions of Jesus. A detail from those visions is how Jesus introduces himself to the church, and the detail is always somehow connected to what Jesus is going to address the church about. So just to give you a couple of examples, um, he tells Smyrna, I am the one who who died and came back to life. Why is that important for Smyrna? Well, he's going to tell them about how pretty soon Satan's going to take you and throw you into prison, and some of you are going to die for me, but do not worry. Why? Because I've already told you I'm the one who died and came back to life. Or one more, um, Thyatira, he's the one with the eyes like a flame of 
fire. Why, why is that important? Well, he's going to talk about how there's immorality in their church. And we said last week that his eyes like a flame of fire mean that he can see through all things. Fire burns through everything. You cannot escape his witness. And so he can see your immorality. He's got eyes like a flame of fire. He gives a personal acknowledgement of the church next. Notice the letter, the, the words of each Every letter, all seven of them, the first thing Jesus says is, I know. I know. All seven letters, that's the first thing he says after he introduces himself. Jesus knows his churches. He knows them intimately. He knows our church, Mount Zion. He knows us. This thing we do every week, this isn't just some cultural thing we do because this is the way we've always done it. Jesus sees us and knows us. Right now, as we study his word, as you're in your living room now watching this, maybe on your phone, as we study his word, he's looking down on us from heaven. He knows us. He then gives an exhortation to the church. Each one of these letters, he gives some kind of exhortation. He encourages them for their good works, and he rebukes them for their bad works. Two of the churches, as I said, he has nothing um, bad to say about them. He's got everything good to say about them, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Four of the churches, he's got both an encouragement and a rebuke for them. That is Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. And then Laodicea receives nothing but rebuke. They are a terrible church. Each church has their situations. Ephesus has good doctrine, but they've lost their first love. We don't know if this is love for Jesus or love for each other, but they are typically tied together. If you don't love Jesus very well, you're probably not going to love other people very well, and vice versa. Smyrna is suffering. Christ encourages them to stay faithful in their suffering. Pergamum, he tells them, you've, you've held fast to me, but you're beginning to accept false doctrine. You're beginning to accept false teaching. He, he, he symbolically calls it the teaching of Balaam. That's a reference back to Numbers 22 through 24, um, a story of the talking donkey in the Old Testament. Go read it later. Um, Thyatira, they have love, faith, service, and patient endurance, but they've got rampant sexual immorality in their church. Um, they've got a woman there who Jesus calls Jezebel. That's probably not her actual name. It's a reference to the woman who was the wife of Ahab, probably the most wicked woman in the Old Testament. Um, just hated God and hated the people of God. You've got Sardis. They have some faithful believers in the church, but they're dead. They look alive to everyone around them. They, they've got, you know, a lot of activities going on. They, they have really exciting worship gatherings. They've got a lot of money in their budget, but they are spiritually dead. And you have Philadelphia. They have an opportunity before them, an open door to bear witness for Jesus. They simply have to seize the opportunity and be faithful. And then you have Laodicea. They are lukewarm. Jesus wants them to be either hot or cold. That is not, we, it's often been taught that that means he wants them to either be completely sold out and faithful or just not even follow him at all. That's not what he's saying. That, that's not what he's saying. Jesus doesn't want people to not follow him. They end up in hell. That's not what he wants for them. 
You see, understand, Laodicea was, was the middle ground between two other cities. Those two other cities both had particular types of water. One of them had hot springs, one of them had really cold drinking water. So both really good things for, of water. You want to take a bath in a hot bath, don't you? But you want a cold glass of water to drink. Laodicea has to pump in that water to use. They have to bring it in through plumbing. By the time it gets to them, it's no longer piping hot or ice cold. It's lukewarm. It's not good for anything. It's, it's not good for anything. And that's what Jesus is taking and comparing Laodicea's faith to. You're like that water you pump in. Good for nothing. Then he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Sometimes this one is the last statement. Sometimes it's the next to last. And finally, he gives a promise to those who conquer. If the church listens to Jesus, if they do what he says, they will conquer. And when, when he says that, he promises them some kind of specific blessing. And they're always from Revelation 21 and 22, which we're going to get to in a few weeks. It's the end of the book. It's the new creation. They're promised They're promised eternal life if they will repent and and listen. Once again, all these are specific to the church. For example, Smyrna, again, verse 11 of chapter 2. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Why is that important? Well, I've already told you, they're going to die. They're going to be persecuted and die. But don't worry, you'll face the first death, but you will not be harmed by the second death if you conquer. So conquer. Every manuscript that exists of Revelation uh, originally, um, they, all, they have all the seven letters in it. So it's not as if John wrote seven different copies of Revelation and each one of them had one of the different letters in it. Every manuscript of Revelation has all seven of these. So it was expected that each church was going to read each letter. So with these letters before us, I want to bring all the themes of them together and I want to give us five things Jesus wants for his churches. Five things he wants for Mount Zion Baptist Church, and then we'll be finished. So five things. First of all, Jesus wants us to have correct doctrine. He wants us to believe the right things. We see this in the church in the letter to Ephesus and the letter to Pergamum. Ephesus chapter 2 verse 2, they they don't bear with those who call themselves apostles. They try everything, and, and they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, verse 6. Pergamum is rebuked, on the other hand, for their acceptance of false doctrine. Verse, chapter 2, verse 14, they, they, have, they have accepted the, the teaching of Balaam. And then in chapter 5, verse 15, they, they hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We don't know who the Nicolaitans are, but they're false teachers at the time, we can tell. Um, you know, a lot of churches today are pretty lax on doctrine. At some point, churches started saying, it doesn't matter what you believe about all the particulars. All that matters is that you love Jesus. And I would ask those churches, which Jesus Which Jesus are you talking about? Because that's what doctrine is. It's beliefs about who Jesus is. If you love Jesus, but he doesn't line up with what the Bible says about Jesus, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. I'm planning to teach next year on um, Sunday nights um, 
a series looking at all the doctrines of the Christian faith, because most Christians don't know them. Most Christians don't know all the doctrines of the Christian faith. That teaching series is going to be most of next year on Sunday night. There'll be a couple other things, but, but, but most of Sunday night next year, we're going to look at all the doctrines of the Christian faith. I want you to be there for that. You need to know these. You need to know these because you need to know what you believe, and you need to be able to recognize false teaching. Every two, every two years, a ministry called Ligonier Ministry conducts a survey in the United States called the State of Theology. 2020s just came out a couple weeks ago. Um, what they do is they interview a general group of Americans, over a thousand, um, over a thousand Americans. Um, but you can go on there and you can actually narrow down, okay, what did all the white people say? What did all the women say? What did all the, um, you know, what did all the people of this denomination say? What did all this say? You know, you can do that. So I went on there and I looked up, what did all the evangelicals say? People who hold to the, who claim to hold to the same faith that we do go to churches that would align with ours. What did they say? And I was dumbfounded at what I found. They interview people on 35 theological statements. Do you agree with this or no? Is this true or false? They give them statements of what the Bible teaches. There's 35 of them. I just want to read you five, tell you the results for five of them. Only 35% of evangelicals strongly disagreed that God accepts the worship of all religions. Only, that, that is 65% of evangelicals interviewed either said God accepts the worship of all religions or we're not completely convinced that he doesn't. 20% of evangelicals were not completely certain that God never makes a mistake. That's a fifth of evangelicals thought it's possible. I guess it's possible God can make a mistake. 44% of evangelicals, remember that's almost half of those that were interviewed, 44% of evangelicals strongly agreed that Jesus was the first created being of God. That Jesus, God of the universe, the one who created all things, was a created being, just like you and me. Half the books, half, a bunch of the letters in the New Testament are written to counter that belief. The book of Colossians is all about confronting false teachers who were saying that Jesus was a created being. 31% of evangelicals believed that the Holy Spirit can tell you to do something forbidden in the Bible. Only 59% of evangelicals were certain that sex outside of marriage is a sin. This is detrimental because the Bible is clear that false doctrine always leads to a sinful lifestyle. It always leads to, uh, as I said Sunday morning, worship chaos always leads to moral chaos. If your life with God is not in good standing in your heart, your mind, or your soul, your life will end up in a bad place. It always will. Jesus wants his church to have correct doctrine. Secondly, Jesus wants his church to hold fast to Jesus in the face of opposition. We see this in five of the letters. Ephesus, we see the phrase patient endurance twice, verse um, 2 and verse 3. Um, Smyrna, basically the whole letter is about being faithful in persecution. Pergamum, 
chapter 2, verse 13 says, Hold fast and do not deny my faith. Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 19, we see patient endurance again. And Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 10, we see patient endurance again, a fourth time. You know, it's been very easy to be a Christian in America for the last 200 years, generally. For the most part, the culture and the church have been in line, have agreed, but that window is closing. I don't like to make bold statements about how bad persecution will get in America. A lot of, a lot of pastors do that to get the crowd all, all scared and riled up. I, I'm not going to do that because most of the time they end up being wrong. They've been doing that for decades. I've been hearing my whole life that in the next five years, Christians are going to be getting imprisoned for their faith, and it hasn't happened. So I'm not going to do such a thing, um, but it's no secret that where there used to be good friendship between the church and, and the culture, that is becoming less and less normal. More and more, the secular culture and its institutions are being hateful toward the church. If you've kept up with everything going on in Washington, D.C. with the um, confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, um, if you watched any of the hearings and watched any of the people question her, several people in Washington have been absolutely hateful to her. And if you dig down underneath why, it's because of her Catholic faith and her Catholic worldview. Her Catholic faith informs her position on things like abortion, and they don't like that. Even though, you know, her views on, her opinion on the matter doesn't really matter because a Supreme Court justice is to rule in favor of the law and not in favor of their opinion, but that's a whole other story. More and more people in America and Americans' institutions, that being government, Hollywood, education, etc., they are against the church and the view of the church. I don't have a statement about how bad it will get. I think our anxiety about it tends to go a lot more dramatic than, than what reality will be. But it's just true that likely when I'm 55 years old, I'm 28 today, when I'm 55 years old, I'm going to have challenges to holding fast to Jesus in American culture that the first pastor of Mount Zion never had in 1890. We must hold fast to the word of Jesus not compromise it, continue to faithfully bear witness to it. No matter what happens, no matter if suddenly American culture turns ship and everything is a peaceful Christian land again, or if in 30 years Christians are absolutely the scum of the earth in America, we remain faithful unto death, knowing that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us, Romans 8, 18. We prepare ourselves for that day in case it ever comes. Third, Jesus wants us to bear, Jesus wants his church to bear witness to him. We see this in the letters of Pergamum and Philadelphia. Pergamum, they are commended for not denying the faith, even in the face of people there being martyred. Philadelphia, they have an open door to bear witness. It has been the command of Jesus since the beginning of the church to bear witness to him. That's the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of Jesus. Teach them everything that I've commanded you. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have to bear witness to him. 
What happens, though, is that in the face of opposition, the Christian, as opposition grows to the Christian faith, Christians can be tempted to just keep their mouth shut to escape any opposition. But we can't do that. We're lampstands. We shine light into the world of darkness. We have to open our mouths and tell of what Jesus has done, even if that results in our mouth being slapped closed by somebody. We have and a door of opportunity open as the church did at Philadelphia. We have until Jesus returns to win the lost to him. When that day comes, anyone who doesn't know Jesus is in their sins forever, including those you love who don't know him. We do not want that for them, so we must bear witness to him faithfully. Fourth, Jesus wants his church to be holy. We see this in the letter of Thyatira, the woman there named Jezebel, obviously a reference to a sexually immoral woman who is equated with the most wicked woman in the Old Testament. She is leading men there into sexual immorality and to idolatry. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent and she refused, so I will throw her on a sickbed and everyone who continues to sin with her, I will throw them on a sickbed. She's gonna die because of this. Let's go back to that American embassy. Each American embassy has an ambassador, so a representative from America that is at the embassy. And you expect an American ambassador to represent America well, don't you? So you expect them to have American values, speak highly of America, and to be a true American. What if they don't? What if they hate America and want to see it destroyed? Well, you would say, that's a bad ambassador. They should be fired, right? Understand, unholy Christians are bad ambassadors in the embassy of heaven on earth. Christians are to be representatives of Jesus, so when Christians don't live holy, they misrepresent him. When a Christian has no problem sinning in their actions, their words, and their thoughts, that's problematic. And it will be detrimental. It will lead to nothing but a bad witness and a bad view of Christians. We're called to be in the world shining as a light, but distinct from the world's ways. That's how we represent Jesus. Listen to me, if you're living in secret sin that nobody knows about, you need to repent. You need to repent right now. Your sin will destroy you. It may not destroy you itself, but Jesus may destroy you. He may destroy you and throw you on a sickbed because of your sin. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you shouldn't desire to live a life of sin. Jesus wants you to repent, so repent. Finally, number five, and then we're done. Jesus wants his church to live in the joy of their salvation. We see this in the letters of Smyrna, Sardis, and Laodicea. Sardis, Jesus tells them, wake up, you're dead. You've, you've got a living faith and you're living like you're dead. Laodicea, he says, you're lukewarm. We'll, we'll come back to Smyrna. You know, it's very easy in day-to-day -day life to allow your Christian faith to become mundane. For you to end up dead or lukewarm. It's very easy for that to happen to churches in the course of church conferences and budgets and committee meetings and yard work and so many other things it's easy to forget why we're here and, and, and end up not even thinking about Jesus at all. We have to set our eyes on Jesus. 
and never look away from him. Everything we do has to be centered on Jesus. Jesus wants our church to be vibrantly in love with him. May it never be said by Jesus of us, you, make, you kind of make me want to throw up. Look at Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You see that? But you are rich. How are they rich? They're in poverty. People are persecuting them and throwing them into prison. How are they rich? Well, do you know the riches found in Christ? We so often forget it. They're not rich in money. We're not rich in money. Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. From now to all of eternity, God will, use, will, will show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us for eternity and for all our days. God shows his glorious grace to us. He pours out his love on us. He shows us his kindness now and forever. This is what true riches are. We have this in our salvation. We have to live in it. And that's what Jesus wants for us. Jesus wants us to never stop living in that truth. So we commit to live in the joy of his riches forever. It's been good to study the book of Revelation with you um, once more. I pray that this book continues to strengthen your faith as you read it and as we study it together. Um, and so um, join us next time.